Welcome to episode number five of Nurturing Financial Freedom. I am John Jagay, joined as always by Alex Cabot and Ed Lambert of Birch Run Financial. Welcome, guys. Hope you're staying cool in the summertime. We're doing our best, Jag. It's pretty hot out there still, but uh, the fall, the fall is going to be here before you know it, and then we'll be complaining about how cold it is. Yeah, I know how humid Philly gets in the summertime, and hopefully uh, with some football coming up here soon, we'll be in better shape. Keep our fingers crossed. We're going to start with a really timely topic today, and that is the SECURE Act. Heard a lot about it in the media, a lot of stuff going on with this in D.C. Ed, can you take us through the SECURE Act, what it is, and whether or not it's going to be a good idea? Sure, Jag. Happy to do that. This is really an interesting topic. So the SECURE Act is a proposed law that is essentially designed to help people save for retirement and to reduce the required obligations for distributions on current retirees. And there's two provisions garnering the most attention. One is one that would allow small businesses to pull together to enroll more employees in retirement plans where they, you know, have an opt-out potentially, but people would automatically be enrolled and some of their income would go into a retirement plan. That's obviously a good one. Mm -hmm. The second provision that's garnering the most attention is one in which the required minimum distribution age from IRAs will be pushed back or would be pushed back from age 70 and a half to age 72. Okay. And um, so far, this bill has a massive amount of support in Congress. Uh, It it passed the House by a count of 417 to three. That's unheard of these days. Yeah, it sure is unheard of. And apparently has a lot of support in the Senate as well. Now, helping people save for retirement is very important. So the politicians are obviously all for that. Mm -hmm. And garnering the votes of retirees who won't be forced to take as much you know money out of their IRAs at such an early age that's popular as well and the idea behind pushing back the RMD age is that people are living longer so they don't have to take out as much and theoretically there's a greater chance that people's money lasts for the rest of their lives but as is often the case the devil is somewhat in the details here so to pay for this the current proposal essentially would eliminate what's called a stretch-out IRA for non-spousal beneficiaries. The stretch-out IRA, the way that works, is if you inherit an IRA, again, as a a non-spouse, right now you have three different options. Mm -hmm. One, you take all the money out and pay taxes on it. Mm -hmm. The second, you take the money out over within five years and pay taxes on it. The third is you take a distribution based on your age and life expectancy, okay. which is generally the most palatable if somebody's inheriting a big IRA. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for example, an 80-year-old passes away, leaves a million-dollar IRA to their 50-year-old child. That first year, if they take a stretch-out IRA distribution, they would have to take out roughly $30,000, let's say, okay? Yep. And pay taxes on that on top of their regular income, so it'll be taxed at their highest kind of marginal bracket and could theoretically push them into another bracket. Under the SECURE Act, with that stretch-out provision being eliminated, a beneficiary would have to take all of the money out of the IRA within 10 years, okay? Okay. So now imagine that 50-year-old inheriting a million-dollar IRA and having to take out essentially $100,000 on average per year for the next decade and pay tax on that in addition to everything they're already paying taxes on, okay? Woof. It's obviously a lot. And what Alex and I did was we played around with some numbers to figure out who would be affected the most, who would this bill be good for, who might it not be good for. 
for people who currently don't have retirement plans that would be enrolled in retirement plans, it's it's not a bad thing. A little bit of forced saving um, could help meet this national retirement shortfall, right? Right. For people who have small IRAs and a lot of beneficiaries, it may not really make a difference. If you leave a $50,000 IRA to five beneficiaries and they inherit $10,000 each, it doesn't really matter if they take the money out within 10 years or over their lifetime. In fact, it's actually kind of rare that small IRAs are stretched out just simply because it's a lot of work each year to do so. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, So usually small IRAs are drained pretty quickly. The people who could be affected adversely are those who have large IRA balances, yep. like most of our clients, sure. and a relatively small number of beneficiaries. And you know, going back to that example I gave you a, a little while ago, 50-year-old inherits a million dollars in a beneficiary IRA. If the proposed law goes in place in its current format, they're going to draw that IRA down by the time they're 60 years old, pay taxes on it at a relatively high rate. And it really defeats the purpose of somebody saving a lot of money in a retirement account and then leaving it to their children for them to be able to use for their own retirement unless they take that money out, pay the taxes on it, and are disciplined enough to put it aside. So in its current form, I don't want to speak for Alex, but I don't think I'd be in favor of this becoming law. You know, it's kind of tricky. I would much rather Congress would figure out another way to pay for this. I'm obviously all for pushing the RMD age back, but I think a lot of people's you know, beneficiaries are going to get hit pretty hard from a tax standpoint here if it becomes law in its current form. Alex, a thought on this? The big thing, Jag, is that every individual is different. Yeah. And for, as Ed said, the majority of our clients, this may not be a good thing for their beneficiaries down the road. Yeah. But for some people, the pre-retirement aspects of it are very favorable, but then the post-retirement aspects, it's somewhat neutral. So for some, this is actually a benefit. And for others, it may not be. But you know, ultimately, the laws and the rules surrounding retirement savings and distribution, they're constantly shifting. Um, Social security rules have changed, um, IRAs, 401ks, all types of retirement accounts. Rules change all the time. And our job isn't to necessarily influence legislation. (laughs) It's just to understand what's happening and how it relates to us and how it relates to our clients. So if it happens, we'll adapt and adjust as we need to, as we always have when things change. Alex, when you first retire, is it better to start by drawing from your after-tax accounts or your pre-tax accounts? That's the question that everybody has when they get to retirement, assuming they have a little bit of both. So I can answer that. Let me first define what after-tax and pre-tax accounts are. I'm going to make a note of this for 25 years from now when I hang it up. So, okay. <laughs> it's an important lesson. So, uh, so pay attention closely and hopefully the laws won't change between now and then. Right. So the two types of accounts, after-tax and pre-tax, uh, after-tax accounts represent money that's already been taxed. So distributions can be taken from those accounts without any additional tax due. Now, if you have assets in the account and you're selling things to get liquidity, you might have capital gains that will require taxation, but uh, they're not taxed at ordinary income tax rates. They're taxed at capital gains rates, which generally are a bit cheaper than ordinary income tax. And 
Pre-tax accounts represent money that has not yet been taxed. So things like 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, pensions, all of the money in those accounts, you never paid tax on it. So eventually the government wants their piece and they get their piece when you take the money out of that retirement account. There's generally no tax due until distributions are made. Distributions from these types of accounts are taxed at ordinary income rates, which again, generally higher than the capital gains and dividend rates. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that a lot of people don't really have that much in after-tax assets. Okay. Somebody's worked for a corporation their entire career. They've accumulated a nice 401k, a nice pension that might be a cash balance where they can actually take the bulk of it in one shot. And all of that money is pre-tax. It's all qualified. And if that represents the lion's share of their savings, well, then there's no real debate. The distributions that this person takes will need to come from pre-tax dollars because there are no after-tax dollars. Right. Now, assuming that there are, this is where it gets a little bit tricky. So oftentimes the first year or two of retirement will result in a retiree showing greater income than in previous and most likely in future years. We see it a lot with things like uh, accumulated vacation pay, bonuses, restricted stock, stock options, severance, uh, oftentimes. It's all that stuff that kicks in when you retire. Yeah, and it usually hits in that uh, that final year, either the year you retire or right after you retire. So Ed says this a lot. He says that the retirement year is usually a watershed tax year. You usually end up owing uh, a lot more than you normally would. But it's, of course, because you've shown a lot more income, uh, at least realized income, than you normally would. Makes sense. So generally, if you can pull from after-tax accounts, you can reduce the amount of taxable income that's reported to the IRS. Because again, this money's already been taxed. It's yours. You can draw from it as you want. These are accounts that you've paid the taxes on the front end as opposed to the back end. Generally, if you can pull from these after-tax accounts first, you reduce the amount of taxable income that's reported to the IRS. And if your reportable income is going to be high, in the year that you retire the year after, it's usually wise to defer distributions from those pre-tax accounts, which would bump your income even higher when it's reported to the IRS, Mm -hmm. and rather pull money from the after-tax accounts, the post-tax accounts, so that you're not creating any more income that's reportable. Now, if your reportable income is low or non-existent, Pulling from pre-tax dollars might not impact the tax situation that adversely. You still would owe income tax on whatever you pull out, but if you're not showing a lot of income from other sources, it probably won't bump you up into an extremely high tax bracket and your liability will likely be low. Every individual situation is different. Of course. So here's where the calculation gets a little bit tricky. Uh, Not that that wasn't tricky enough, but it gets even (laughs) more tricky as we go forward. Run DMC said it best. It's tricky. (laughs) It is tricky. I loved that song. It does get tricky here when when you have both pre-tax accounts and after-tax accounts with significant balances. And there's the temptation for most people to draw exclusively from these after-tax accounts while they can in order to minimize their tax liability in the current year. Right. And that's usually what our simulations assume, that you're just trying to keep your tax liability as low as possible each year and, and each subsequent year. But it can get a little bit more complicated because if you're drawing only what you need from after-tax accounts, 
the balance in your pre-tax accounts will likely continue to grow, continue to accumulate over that period of time. So let's say somebody retires at 60 and they pull for 10 years from just an after-tax account. Yep. All of their qualified accounts, all their pre-tax money is continued to grow and grow and grow and grow. And that sounds great because hmm. it's growing and they're not paying taxes on it. But there's always a but. You get to age 70 and a half, at least now. Ed was talking about the SECURE Act. It might be 72 come 2020. But you get to that age where you are then forced to take money out of your retirement account from your pre-tax assets. And it's possible that you end up with a much larger balance in your pre-tax account than is necessary to satisfy your income need with just required minimum distributions. So what you're saying, Alex, is it seems like a good idea to pull from the ones you've already paid the taxes on. But the problem is the ones that you still have to pay taxes on when you pull the money out, if you don't take something out of there, it's going to keep growing interest and there's going to be more money in there to be taxed on when you pull it out. Yes. And what happens is eventually that pre-tax account gets to the point where it's so big that the required minimum distributions that you're taking is actually more than you need. Yeah. So you end up needlessly bumping yourself up into a higher bracket just to take that money and not spend it. So this is where the calculation comes into play. Mm -hmm. It might, for some people, make sense to take small distributions from pre-tax accounts, even when you don't have to, in order to reduce the amount that you are required to take later on. Ah. And our strategy is normally this. We look at what somebody's income is estimated to be. We figure out how much we could take out of the pre-tax account to bring them just to the edge of the next tax bracket. So we're not adding any tax liability beyond their normal marginal rate. We're just bringing them up to that limit so that we're being as efficient as we can with the distributions. And that's, I think, it's a strategy that it's difficult to figure out the exact dollar amounts. And it's hard, even if you know how to do it, it's hard to get it exactly right. But we have seen that as an effective tool to help minimize tax liability over longer periods of time. I think that's so important because you talk about a really complicated, complex calculation and you can run the numbers on your old school adding machine as much as you'd like, but the tools that you guys have at your disposal there at Birch Run, you may not be able to get it as an exact science, but if somebody comes in, you really can, like you said, run all the numbers and see what the best strategy is for that situation to minimize somebody's tax burden. Yeah. Now imagine too, Jag, I don't want to go back to my rant about Secure Act, but imagine how that could have uh, get much more complicated when you figure in whether you should draw down on purpose your qualified accounts during your lifetimes uh, so that when you pass money on to your kids, it might lighten up their tax liability too. There's one other thing that can further complicate this issue. As if we didn't have enough issues to begin with, there's one last one. Please, Alex, complicate it even further. <laughs> and that's the question, Jag, of what happens if you need to show income for some reason? And what would be a situation where you would need to show income in retirement? The one that we've seen most frequently is applying for a mortgage or a refinance. Okay. And that requires you to show taxable income. And I know it sounds strange. You could have a $5 million balance in your checking account <laughs> and use that to pay all your living expenses. And you could be applying for a $200,000 refinance with $5 million in your checking account. And the lender won't care 
about the balance in your checking account. The lender will likely only care about what you're showing in taxable income because that's how they do their calculations about what you're able to repay. They want to see over the next few years what are you going to make per year, not what you have now because you could always spend that. They want to see what you've got coming in. That's right. So the reason you would want to show income, and you can do this with distributions from a pre-tax account, is to qualify for something like a mortgage or a refinance. So most lenders require several months of income to be shown. Uh, Most of them don't actually require more than that. We've seen some that go a little bit longer, but usually if you just take three or four months worth of distributions from an IRA account or a retirement account, that satisfies any obligation that the mortgage lender has to meet their criteria. Right. So that's something you have to pay attention to as well is if there is a need for income, if you know that you'll be looking to refinance or looking to buy a second property that you want to get a mortgage on for whatever reason, that you have to take money out. You have to be showing income, showing taxable income in order to qualify for that. And that's as complicated as I'm going to get. It can get more complicated, but I'm not going to go into any more detail on that. I think we've covered that one pretty well. I think so. Something we talked about a minute ago is interest and how interest can add up. This is something that you can kind of see on both sides of the coin, where if you've got money saved up, that compound interest can help. If you owe money on, say, a credit card, that compound interest can really put you in a bad spot. So, Ed, how impactful is compound interest? Let's just put it this way, Jag, to give you an idea. It's been widely rumored over the years that Albert Einstein called compound interest the most powerful force in the universe. Now, whether that's true or not, we don't know, but it's a very, very powerful thing. And like you mentioned, it can either work for you or if you're paying compound interest, as people with credit card debt know, it can certainly work against you. Yeah. And to explain how powerful compound interest can be, I want to introduce a a concept called the rule of 72 that's often used in personal finance. And the rule of 72 just quite simply states that if you want to figure out how many years it takes for money to double, you divide a rate of return into 72. So at a 7.2% rate of return, it takes 10 years for money to double. 72 divided by 7.2 equals 10, okay? Sure. At a 6% rate of return, which I'll use for these examples for this question, because that's roughly what a lot of balanced portfolios have produced over the last couple decades. It takes 12 years at 6% for money to double. You know, 72 divided by 6 equals 12, okay? Yep. So that essentially means if if you're a 40-year-old guy around our age, and you have $100,000 sitting in an IRA, you don't put any more money away. If you were to earn 6% a year over the next 24 years, when you're 64 years old, that $100,000 IRA is now worth $400,000, which that's a lot of money, Jag, right? Indeed. Now, if you extend this out further beyond 24 years, let's say you go out 36 years, Uh now it doubles again. So a dollar today... 36 years from now is worth $8. And that's why it's so very important to start saving and investing very early. We preach this all the time to the children of our clients, the young people we meet, to start a 401k as soon as you can, or an IRA or a Roth. Put as much away as you can afford to because the money you put away now is going to be quite impactful multiple decades down the line. So to give you an idea, let's say you're 25 years old, and you manage in your 401k between your contributions and company match. Let's say you manage 
to put away about $10,000. Okay. Which it may not be that easy when you're 25, but it'll get easier as you make more money as you go. Yeah. If you want to retire in 40 years at age 65 and you put that $10,000 a year away, if you were to earn that 6% rate of return that we're using for this example over the 40-year period, you would have a little bit more than $1.5 million in 40 years, okay? So you've put away $400,000, $10,000 a year times 40 years, right? and your investment gain is about $1.1 million. Now, let's say rather than starting young, you start later and try to catch up. Right. Let's say you start saving for retirement at age 50. At that same rate of return, 6% a year, to end up with a million and a half at age 65, you have to put away about 65 grand a year rather than 10,000 a year. So you end up at the same point, but you end up putting away rather than $400,000, you're putting away $975,000 to end up at the same million and a half balance. And putting away $65,000 a year for most people for any period of time, let alone 15 years, it can be a pretty Herculean task. Sounds almost impossible, yeah. But if you had started early, it's a heck of a lot easier. And like I said, at 25, you know, just starting out your career, it could be somewhat difficult. But when your income grows drastically over the years, it's not that difficult to put that amount away. And now let's take this power of compound interest out a bit further. Okay. So let's say the average person graduates college and they're 22 years old, right? Yep. And let's just say they want to retire when they're 65. So they got 43 years to work, right? Mm-hmm. In that first year, let's say they're able to sock away $5,000, just 5000 between their contributions and company match. If they were to earn that 6% we've been using for this example, by the time they retire, that five grand they put away in their first year of working is worth $61,000. Wow. Okay, so just an unbelievable impact. And what we see with our own clients the vast majority of the clients Alex and I work with, Jag, are in a good financial position. Of course, yeah. Most of them are close to retirement or in retirement, but most of them come to us, obviously, before they retire. We help them prepare and, and make that transition. And the reason why the vast majority of these people are in such a good financial position is not because they started saving at age 50 mm. and saved a massive amount of money. Most of our clients at retirement, save a relatively modest amount of money each year, but they've been doing it for a long time. And, you know, we see a lot of people who are 60 years old that are really, truly financially independent, but we also see a lot of people who aren't, Yeah, who are scrambling to catch up. So, you know, the moral of the story is really compound interest is very, very powerful but you have to have a long enough time horizon to let it do its magic. I'm so glad to hear that you talk to your clients' children and some of your younger clients about this. I just keep going back in my head to what you mentioned a minute ago, Ed, about $5,000 a year. You divvy that up, that's roughly 100 bucks a week. Yep. And if you can convince a 25-year-old that, okay, $100 a week, that's a night out with your friends. One night. That's you know a couple of rounds of drinks at an upscale bar every week. Yep. That is 
going out to dinner. That is taking somebody out on a date to a decent restaurant. And if you can just put that away every week, and also maybe your company's going to match your 401k or whatever your individual situation is, the amount of money that that turns into just by saving it now and not even touching it for the next four and a half decades it really is such a powerful visual and such a powerful example. I wish more people in their 20s knew that. I wish I knew that when I was 25. It certainly is. And the big thing is, I think, when you're young, it's harder to envision yourself. Absolutely. As a 60 or 65-year-old. But most people who are in their early 20s are going to get there. The other thing is, you know, and we've all experienced this, when we get our first real full-time job out of college, yep or grad school or, or, or whatever it may be, we're earning a lot more money than we ever made at any point in our lives before. Oh, yeah. So enrolling right away in a retirement plan, even if you're in a small business with this SECURE Act, you know, you get a little bit more um, access to this sort of thing. It's not really that hard. You just have to have a, a little bit of discipline and you have to go ahead and do it. And 40 years from now, you, you really thank yourself for making smart decisions now. If I can add one thing to that, Jag, mm-hmm. uh, this may be a, something I mentioned on a previous podcast, but there are a lot of people out there who have gotten to a point in their career. Maybe they're their late 30s, early 40s. You know, that's Ed and I are both in our late 30s right now. Mm-hmm. And some people look and say, well, gosh, I, I didn't really save that much from when I was 22 to now, when I'm 39 or 40, what can I do? And there's an old proverb that says, the best day to plant a tree was 20 years ago. And that's that's true because if you could go back in time and, and start it then, that's fantastic. And you'd be in a great situation. Unfortunately, it's not possible to go back 20 years and plant a tree or start saving. But the proverb continues, the second best day to plant a tree is today. Ah. So if you haven't started yet, no matter what age you are, just start. You have to do something and it'll take more. It will be a more difficult path. But our job as advisors isn't to tell people exactly what to do and when and why. Our job is to look at where they are, figure out where they're trying to go, and come up with the best advice we can to get them to that destination. Got it. And our advice isn't always what people want to hear. But if you can start saving today, it's better than waiting till tomorrow. A thousand percent. And to take that a step further, Jag, Mm -hmm. people who are already saving, most 401ks, unless you're already maxing it out, it's pretty easy to increase your contribution rate. Yeah. And that can be pretty impactful too. And you can do it in 1% increments. I mean, you can gradually kind of turn up the heat and increase the savings rate. But, you know, like Alex said, even if you have some regret, the best time to go ahead and do these sort of things are as soon as possible. I'm picturing four 25-year-olds sitting around a table at brunch on a Sunday morning. Hey, what'd you do last night? Oh, hey, I went out to the bar. What'd you do last night? Oh, I went on this great date. Oh, what'd you do? And then the last one says, oh, I actually stayed home and put money in my 401k. And they all look at him and go, what? And then flash forward to 40 years later, and the rest of them are all scrambling, and this guy or girl is sitting pretty. So it's such a powerful analogy. It's just painting such a strong visual in my mind right now. Yep, absolutely. And one thing we do see, and it's hard for young people to envision this, but you do get older and sometimes people just simply get tired of work, Jag. Yeah. And to be in a financial position 
where you can afford to walk away when you really do get tired of it is truly amazing. I know most of my friends are tired of work now and it's somewhere between age 35 and 40, but I think you're generally speaking a little bit later on, right? Yeah, well, you know, unless your buddies are the, uh, the, the people who are into the fire movement. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Good callback to our previous episode. Alice Cabot, Ed Lambert from Birch Run Financial. Always appreciate your time. What are the best ways for people to reach out and get a hold of you? Easiest way is to check us out on our website, www.birchrunfinancial.com. You can also call the office here at 484-395-2190. We're always happy to talk. Guys, appreciate your time as always. Stay cool. Thanks, Jag. Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next month, all right? Yep. Thank you, Jag. Any opinions are those of Ed Lambert and Alex Cabot and not necessarily those of RJFS or Raymond James. The information contained in this report does not purport to be a complete description of the securities, markets, or developments referred to in this material. There is no assurance if any of the trends mentioned will continue or forecast will occur. The information has been obtained from sources considered to be reliable, but Raymond James does not guarantee that the foregoing material is accurate or complete. Any information is not a complete summary or statement of all available data necessary for making an investment decision and does not constitute a recommendation. Investing involves risk and you may incur a profit or loss regardless of strategy selected. Diversification and asset allocation do not ensure a profit or protect against a loss. The examples throughout this material are for illustrative purposes only. Actual investor results may vary. Future performance cannot be guaranteed and investment yields will fluctuate with market conditions. Raymond James does not provide tax or legal services. Please discuss these matters with the appropriate professional.